Hey everybody, you're listening to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthaus here in Tucson, Arizona. For this week's show, we're going to wrap up our spotlight on climate science and focus on the future, which I suppose is a logical conclusion to a three-part series that first focused on the past and the present. So if you want to know more, um, just go back and re-listen to those two episodes, uh, maybe even before you listen to this one. For this episode, I'm going to do my best to answer a deeply original and not at all annoying question I've never heard before. Hey, Eric, you're a meteorologist. You can't even get tomorrow's forecast right. How can you expect me to believe you know what's going to happen 50 years from now? (laughs) It's a serious question. Come Uh, on. (laughs) To get to the bottom of this and to lay out what we know about where we're headed together on this beautiful blue planet, I am joined by our expert question asker Jacqueline Gill in Orono, Maine. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey. And Andy Revkin in the Hudson Valley of New York. Good to be with you always. So first off, um, I want to be clear that obviously there is still a lot we don't know about the future. Things like how much coal India burns in the next decade and what president we elect in November will have a lot to do with what happens with the climate in our lifetime. And obviously, these things are not yet known. This is, uh, of course, always the problem with climate change is how do you get something that will largely happen in the future, but has already started to feel immediate and urgent and worth talking about right now? I don't know. Jacqueline, you seem to know everything. I'm still waiting for my question to be answered, but that's cool. Um, (laughs) No, so I, um, you know, I think... The, the focus on the, I mean, as someone who works in the past uh, as a paleoecologist, I often say that I have my, you know, while I'm thinking about an ice age world, I'm living in a greenhouse world. And the questions I'm interested in about the past are, are deeply motivated by concern for the next century. And um, to me, that's sort of the core of why so many of us do what we do um, as scientists and as communicators. And so, you know, often, you know, just even since I've been in graduate school, you know, there have been a few um, IPCC reports that have come out. And for me, I think one of the... How long did you take to finish grad school? Because they come out once every seven years. Well, since since <laughs> since I got into grad school, okay. right, 2005, right? So there have been two, okay? So, right, the... Um, so there have been a couple, I should say. Um, so, uh you know, for me, as a grad student, just really deeply engaging with the the IPCC reports, AR4 and AR5 in particular, um, was a really powerful experience because I, you know, we focused a lot on these various, um, these RCP trajectories and um, the the idea that your scientific predictions about the future could also involve, um, you know, what human beings would do, um, whether or not we shared technology, um, what the economy does, um, you know, guesses about or predict, they're not guesses, they're informed predictions about, um, you know, how human societies will behave and interact, um, and just how much that will affect, you know, the basic science was as I'm sitting here learning about, you know, the, the, the basic earth system science, um, as a grad student, I'm, I'm, I I became deeply impressed with the importance of just understanding some basic human nature um, alongside of that and just just how much that affects the kinds of 
potential futures that might emerge. Yeah, it's a really weird problem to have. Um, and it's in a way, it's sort of like a forced interdisciplinarity, if that's a, a word, um, in the sense that we have people who historically, you know, disciplines like geology, that what you study hasn't changed a whole lot for a while. Um, and to put that into the context of changes that may happen in a human lifetime, it's sort of like a slap in the face, kind of. Yeah, I would definitely say, well, it's interesting, too, because as shortly, shortly before I entered grad school, so during my undergraduate degree, um, we were really starting to understand abrupt climate change really comes onto the scene. And, you know, the day after tomorrow <laughs> came out right before I started um, graduate school, and it was uh, it was sort of inspired by this the, the previous few years where we were really as a scientific community realizing just how quickly things could change in the paleo record um, these abrupt climate events um, that are that the day after tomorrow is kind of loosely based on and um, in a scientific like a, going from science to science fiction and so um, you know yeah we the sort of geologic record shows these long periods of stasis but there can also be these really abrupt and rapid events. And, and I think since then, we've really wanted to know, you know, can you identify one of these in the near future before it actually comes? And can you prevent it from happening? And how do you, uh, how do you identify these tipping points in systems um, that are, you know, constantly changing? And yeah, yeah. and Andy, the, um, the phenomenon that Jacqueline is talking about here is the, um, the thermo haline circulation, the, the, the circulation driven by freshwater input to the entire North Atlantic. Um, that's the science that the day after tomorrow is very, very, very loosely based on. Right. It's, uh, it's been a, such an interesting evolution. It was in the 80s that Wally Broker, who lives here in the Hudson Valley, an amazing scientist, uh, came up with the idea that there's uh, that we're poking, as he put it, an angry beast with, uh, with a stick, the angry beast being this kind of turbulent aspect of what can happen with those systems that, that move heat around much in big quantities, you know, through the ocean circulation. And, but he did, he modulated his views on that later. He said the angry beast is a creature of colder climates. In other words, coming out of an ice age is different than going from an from an interglacial into a warmer period. Um, although there's been recent science that still says, uh, you know, Europe could see a big chill in a warming world. And there's this cold spot off of Green, Greenland right now in the North Atlantic uh, that isn't well modeled. Uh, and this gets back at the complexities of the system, which you don't relax about, but that are real, you know. Uh, and I think what I, one reason I pay a lot of attention to Wally is because he's, I've seen his views evolve in different directions. It's, it demonstrates that he's a scientist, meaning evidence matters. And he learned more about something that looks sort of stark and simplistic initially, and then becomes uh, clearer there's other factors involved. And and by the way, he is completely worried about global warming, as am I. It's just that the sometimes what we see an idea first emerge, it's kind of a scary cartoon, and then it becomes more subtle. Um, and But again, that doesn't mean we know anything. It means that what we know is always plastic and uh, evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as it should be. Yeah. And that's one reason that I love the, you know, the fact that the IPCC comes out every seven years or so. I mean, that's not a very long time in, in the lifespan of some scientific ideas. And this idea that we have a commitment to be constantly 
revising the science, sort of taking stock and then presenting that and then taking stock and, and you know, representing and taking stock and representing iteratively as we go. And that each report has a range of possible futures and those possible futures become constrained as we improve um, the, the, the science, as we improve our understanding of different aspects, you know, going from um, whether it's sea level rise or the role of clouds or other things that, you know, have continued to, to pr- pr- present really big challenges to the scientific community in terms of future projections. Um, I just, I love to, to me the, the idea of the uncertainty being very rigorously communicated, um, you know, and, um, you know, we can, we can really thank Steve Schneider for, for that legacy, you know, in terms of the, the tightening up the language about what likely means and what very likely and what certain means in terms of, of you know, st- statistical likelihood. And so I just, for me, the IPCC as a, as a summary of our current science and a projection of a possible range of possible futures is just this really great illustration of, um, of, of how science sh- should work. So, so just to uh, to to define some of the things that that Jacqueline is talking about right now, the the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the world's authority, pretty much for for climate science, uh, and these are people that that volunteer their time to sort of gather um, the latest state of the science. Um, and, and so, the, for the last report, they they came up with something called uh, representative concentration pathways. Um, the RCP that Jacqueline mentioned, and, and, and this, so this is factoring in um, possible futures that um, about changes in demographics and um, economic growth and um, the use of the use of coal and renewable energy and um, you know pretty much anything that could possibly happen over the next few decades to try to chart out a course of how the climate would respond. So um, really quickly, because I think it's really interesting, there are, f- are four representative concentration pathways. Um, the first one um, shows a, a, a very sharp uh, reduction in emissions um, and has the best potential of holding climate change to less than two degrees, which is sort of the goal that everyone agreed to in, in, uh, in Paris. Um, so this is, this is what you know, small island states and um, and places at the front lines are really hoping will happen, but big big but uh, it relies um, on a, a, a huge uptake in negative emissions technology. So this is basically like turning factories in reverse and sucking carbon dioxide back into the ground and storing it there for you know thousands of years, ideally. Um, this is obviously not been tested on a large scale before and would involve, you know, growing lots and lots and lots of biomass, um, burning it in factories that can capture that biomass and then sealing it, sealing the, the resulting carbon dioxide underground, um, which hopefully that happens. But I don't know that many people are betting on that. Um, so the second, the second RCP scenario is a stabilization with a 50% increase in CO2 from current levels. And this is around the track that we're on right now, especially post Paris. Um, maybe a little bit higher than this um, is what we're on the, 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 the track for right now. Um, third, the third RCP scenario is 
a uh, doubling of CO2 from current levels. And, and each of these two middle scenarios show a warming of somewhere between two and three and a half degrees Celsius. Uh, that, that third scenario shows a much sharper reduction over time than, than the second scenario, like a later peak. But, you know, well within the range of reasonable possibility. Um, so the fourth RCP scenario is basically Trump wins, we burn pretty much everything we can get our hands on, and um, we end up with a warming of between three and a half and five and a half degrees Celsius. And and that's a point in when where, you know, by the end of the century, we could have multimeter sea level rise, we could have, you know, large parts of, of, of what is now productive cropland turning into desert, um, you know, hundreds of millions of climate migrants. And um, James Hansen has, has focused a lot in the last um, year or two of his work on sort of narrowing down just what that sort of scenario might look like and how it might play out and what sort of tipping points may be involved. Um, and it's not pretty. <laughs> I mean, it, it, like he's, he's using words like the, the um, inability to maintain global governance or things like that. You know, like we're talking about basically a breakdown in society. W- when you sort of break it down, it's overwhelming for me personally to think about uh, the fact that the next decade or two of choices by each of us and by governments and by everyone will determine that what what which of these paths we're on it it is a pretty um amazing moment um there was a paper an amazing paper this year speaking of the word amazing that talked about the multi-millennial implications for climate and sea level of uh this century's policy decisions and that when you look at the graphs in that paper by peter clark um ray pierre humbart and others uh, i point to these graphs all the time in trying to get people to understand the scope of this in time where essentially you look at the last 10,000 years of say sea level and it's pretty much stable you know there's lots of ups and downs the last 10,000 years but uh, and then you look at the next 10,000 and just like you mentioned these RCP levels uh, each one comes with a fundamentally profoundly different sea level for the next 10,000 plus years it's not like as you say it's a decision that's you can't just sort of ratchet the knob back and say oh never mind uh, because of the long-lived nature of CO2, the main greenhouse gas, the, the momentum in the climate system itself, and in ice sheets. Um, and the high end of the sea levels, again, on a 10,000-year time frame, is 50 meters higher than today. And that's like... 50, that's five, kind of, zero meters. Yeah, five, zero meters. Yeah, so we're like, Florida's totally gone at that point. Oh, yeah, forget about it. I mean, again, the, the question that matters most to policymakers and anyone alive today is maybe what's the next hundred years mean? And that that's like a stretch to think that we care about a hundred years. Uh, and that's highly uncertain. That's the territory where uh, things haven't changed since uh, my articles in 1988. Mm-hmm. In, my, in my reporting, I really try to focus on what's going to happen in our lifetime. So the next 30 or 40 years, and even that's a stretch, but I feel like when, when you start talking about 50 meters and 10,000 year sea level rise projections, then it's sort of, you know, it, it's not that different than science fiction because we there's no way to there's no way to really know what human society will be like in 10,000 years and what capacity we might have. I know that's assuming a lot, but just think back 10,000 years and where we were. So Totally. I know, I know. No, it's it's completely it doesn't have much meaning. Although what happens of course 
It's like the inverse of weather forecasting. Weather forecasts are uh, get harder and harder the farther out, and uh, climate forecasts get harder and harder the further in, meaning it's harder to say what sea level will be 50 years from now than it is to say what sea level will be 5,000 years from now. That's fundamentally correct. Although there is a there is a lag um, in the system that, that relates to the storage of heat in the ocean that pretty much not much that we do in the next 10 to 20 years will impact what we have coming 30 years from now like there's right which amplifies the uh, the moral ambiguity yeah you see you see these you know huge you know like hugely diverging spaghetti graphs of the next hundred years and if you look really closely for the next 20 years nothing changes i mean there's no really way to change the scenario of what impacts we'll feel but you know of course you know reducing carbon emissions right now over the next 10 or 20 years will have all the difference in the world, you know, 50 or 100 years from now. So like during the end of our kids' lifetimes, it will make a huge, huge difference of what we do now. But during the rest of our lifetimes, you know, it's sort of locked in already. I know. And one of the one of the toughest policy realities, and this was really hard for John Kerry to get into his head in Paris, is that India has the future has much less importance when you're uh, struggling to get through today mm-hmm. or when you have no no energy today except for dung and firewood mm-hmm. to cook on and that's what india is saying you know we need to grow our emissions um period you guys can do what you can afford to do but we're going to use more yeah, this is one of the hottest permanently settled places in the world and we have um uh, about 300 million people there you know the size of the population of the united states that don't even have electricity at all so you're not talking about, oh, they can't afford an air conditioner. It's just like they don't have any electricity. And we just sort of take for granted everything we have in our um, in our lives. And this is sort of what, um, you know, I was really encouraged to see people like Pope Francis talking about the morality of climate change and saying that we have a responsibility to these um, people on the front lines to reduce our emissions to meet leave leave emission space um for 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 other countries like india to grow their emissions because they should grow their emissions yeah and i, I remember you know we've heard a lot about china and sort of china increasing their emissions and it it's it's apparent that they're stabilizing um in the last couple of years and we may not see much growth from them in terms of carbon emissions but um as you say eric you know india sort of next on on the on the, I guess, next in line. and Yeah, and then Africa after right, that. Right, exactly, you know, yeah. The entire continent of Africa um, has about as many, many people as India has right now. But, right. you know... And, but also, in, and imagine sort of feedbacks where as you push this the climate system further and further into more warm conditions, you know, suddenly societies that can sort of barely make it w- without irrigation or barely make it without air conditioning, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? Um, you know, they're going to have to adopt more and more technologies just, just to be able to survive, um, which are power demanding technologies. Um, especially if we start to see things like, you know, drought, um, in some areas where you don't really have a lot of mobility and you need to continue food production. So this discussion is a, I think a pretty good illustration of why I think most climate scientists think that 1.5, is guaranteed and even two degrees is probably guaranteed because we're at um we've we had a jump of about a quarter degree celsius this year over last year 
um, largely because of the El Nino, but maybe not, you know, um, that there, there's still, you know, a lot of ocean physics to be worked out to see how the heat that is stored in the, in, in the, um, the upper layer of the ocean is released during El Nino events. And that's what happened, I think, um, this last year. So we're, 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 we have the ability as a, as a planet now to jump our, global temperature by about a quarter degree Celsius in a single year. You know, it's not known how long that will stretch out. You know, I'm not emerging. I'm not by any means imagining it's going to keep jumping at that rate. I think it'll probably plateau for several years until the next El Nino. But um, basically, we're we're locked in um, in our lifetimes to at least two degrees C warming and that um, comes with a lot of implications. Um, there are some, at some point, we'll have to do at least a, a one a full segment on geoengineering, but I, and I'm a total geo, geoengineering skeptic on solar radiation management, you know, using volcano-like plumes that we manufacture to uh, counteract or, things. Or dumping but, iron in the oceans. Uh, that, that's it. There's actually some interesting things there, but it's not, can not do it at scale. Um, but, but going back to the solar stuff, David Keith and others, uh, a guy from EDF who moved to uh, Environmental Defense Fund who moved to Harvard recently to work with David Keith on the policy questions, they, they've analyzed recent studies, including by scientists who were not really studying geoengineering. Adam Sobel um, did this recent study that just At came Columbia. out. That, yeah, um, showing that aerosols from p- conventional pollution have you know different impacts as we know on how much warm you know how many some of them warm things some of them cool things but but david keith and others their interpretation of that work is well you get rid of the dirty aerosols which is what we want and you can maintain essentially if you do it in a sort of feathered progressive way you could maintain the cooling aerosols in a way that could at least buy you some time not as a permanent thing but as a uh, while we work out how to have a renewable energy grid <laughs> and all those other things, which will take time, and while we figure out what's going to happen with Africa and India, um, they see a progressive, low, incredibly cheap. That's what's kind of disturbing about it. Um, if you're, you know, really against it, way to um, do it in a, at least sort of a test drivey, smallish volcano way. And um, it's something to think about. Uh, I'm thinking about it more than I used to. And I wrote a year's worth of pieces that were uh, totally skeptical based on the idea that, well, who sets the thermostat? You know, you know, that'll never happen because Russia and the Maldives and the United States and China all have a different definition of what, what's the right temperature. Yeah, and, of course, the precipitation. If we can't even govern well. reduction of emissions, how could we govern something as crazy as that? I agree. I um, agree. But I, I just did an interview... You'll see it in the yeah. mix. I just did an interview uh, this last week with Ken Caldera um, at Stanford. Yeah. He's one of the scientists that are going to this meeting, scoping meeting in Geneva um, to talk about the IPCC special report for meeting 1.5 degrees Celsius. So this was, you know, sort of the the rallying cry of small island states and, and other frontline countries at, at Paris. And they negotiated in to the 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 um, the Paris Agreement, this special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius, and 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 so so scientists like like uh, like Ken are 
thinking, uh, he's been thinking about um, geoengineering for a while, but but sort of thinking about it in a really actual, real way, saying, well, you know, if these countries want 1.5 C, this is a way to get there. And, you know, if we, we need to decide as a world what's more important, you know, is it is it meeting that is does meeting that temperature goal trump other things like economic growth? Does it trump things like reducing poverty? And if so, then, you know, start building the start building the aerosol factories. I mean, it's like that's really the only way to get there at this point, which basically is code word for meaning it's not well, going to happen. You mean you mean you mean the 1.5 is not going to happen? Yeah. This kind of gets to at the at the issue with um, the whole precautionary principle, right? We we have we'll have you know twenty to thirty years before we find out which of these projections will actually be um, following, and so how then do you commit to any one kind of course of action um, when when there's so much uncertainty in the near future? So a really practical example of this uncertainty is. The, uh, the the really highly publicized James Hansen uh, paper that came out earlier this year that was talking about, um, I think included in the title was Sea Level Rise and Superstorms, um, something like that, where, where he's, he's outlining what, um, what they found um, as a feedback in the oceans surrounding surrounding the major land ice sheets ice sheets in in uh, Greenland and Antarctica. So so what happens is if you get the ice to melt fast enough, which they say already is happening potentially fast enough to kickstart this, um, you'll get a layer of fresh cool water on the surface of the ocean right around um, right around the the ice sheet and and this is what Andy was alluding to earlier um, as that cool spot in the North Atlantic um, that's already showing up. If there's enough of that cool, fresh water, it actually um, it actually concentrates the um, stratifi- stratifies the, uh, the the ocean and concentrates the warmer water further below the surface into further melting the ice sheet. So you could get this sort of runaway melting um, based on, this the the physics of of just seawater how seawater behaves and uh he did a sort of a thought experiment going forward and saying that if this um process continues exponentially which they say may happen depending on the doubling time of that exponential growth in ice melt we could get a shutdown of the the uh, the thermohaline circulation and a cool down of of um, of uh, Europe and an increase in the severity of, of storms that are coming across the Atlantic towards the East Coast and you know obviously in a lot of other other places around the world. Um, not to mention super super rapid sea level rise that could could be as high as one or two meters by um, 2050 or 2060, um, which is, you know, 40 years ahead of schedule of previous um, previous predictions. And, you know, there's a lot of, of uncertainty embedded into this, into this prediction, which I think they say, you know, pretty much in the paper is mostly like a thought experiment. It's not, re- it's not really an official 
prediction of what they expect to happen. It's a range of possible things that could happen. This paper came out, I think, in March. A couple weeks later, we had a, a, a presentation at an insurance meeting, and um, a NOAA official who, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she is a, a, a lawyer, um, or um, yep. Mar- Margaret Davidson, who works for NOAA, um, said, do you, do you remember what she said exactly, Andy? I don't have it in front of me, but basically she turned uh, a hypothesis into a prediction. Yeah, well, she says like, well, what I expect um, happening based on the latest science that's coming out faster than we can get into the IPCC process is that we could have, you know, like, I think she said three meters of sea level rise by, by 2050. And yeah, it that, was a complete mangle of that's of not at all everything. in in that James Hansen paper. Um, it, it in she it seems like she sort of thought it would be reasonable to just you know take it one more meter or a step for, farther, expecting that you know by the time the next IPCC comes out, that you know the it, the predictions will have gotten even worse, the the potential worst case scenario. Um, and then you know. A couple of weeks later, in early May, Jill Stein, the presidential candidate, repeated the same thing. Said like Noah is now Noah scientists are now saying that we could have three meters of sea level rise by 2050, and this is the example of how crazy things get blown out of proportion when the the real news seems like science fiction. Often we get this sort of catastrophic thinking of saying, well. If it's this, if they're t- what they're telling us is this bad, then it must probably be even worse than that, and they're just not telling us. It's it's weird. I I, I don't know. Well, I think I think part of it comes down to the fact that the most recent IPCC report showed that we had been under predicting potential sea level rise in previous reports because we weren't factoring in thermal expansion. So the idea that as you heat things up, they, they expand. It wasn't thermal expansion. It was melting of, of Antarctica and Greenland. They didn't factor in. They did factor in thermal expansion. But the, uh, see, having, having written about every IPCC report since before the IPCC, the thing that people miss there is that the 2007 report expressly explained that it was excluding that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were... Yeah. not counting for it. They were just saying it was too uncertain to factor in. It was a choice. And, and it was that a got misinterpreted. Yeah. And it's been, it's been, I'm defending the IPCC yeah. and I haven't always done that, but it was kind of uh, being misconstrued as they were underplaying it. And the IPCC actually, you go back through a, a number of their synthesis uh, statements, they they don't underplay things. They, they're very conservative overall, but it's been very consistently I think describing things. Thanks, as as Jacqueline said, thanks to Steve Schneider's care about how you use characterizing terms, like um, uh, you know that there's numbers behind those words. It's just really important. So basically, what I'm saying is there's a difference between accurately reporting potential worst of the worst case scenarios and 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 just you know blind alarmism. I think. Well, what happens is you get, I even created these little warning signs that I use in social media now. They're like the little yellow caution signs. One is single study syndrome. Single study syndrome is where, you know, advocates for positions are always out there sifting for something that uh, bolsters their position. And this is just as true for Senator Inhofe as it is for someone like Jill Stein. And, And then I have another sign 
called Publication Before Peer Review, Caution. And what happened was a publicity before peer review. And that's Jim Hansen's paper was both. <laughs> it was it was initially published before peer review. All the coverage in that first wave, uh, not all, Eric, not all, but some coverage was glossed over completely that it wasn't even through peer review. The, the, new, the, the uh, CBS and CNN didn't mention it. And then finally, when it got through peer review, it was much more subtle, their conclusions. But to, if, you're, if you're Jill Stein or if you're any kind of an advocate for any position, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So you just, something with data you can latch onto and, uh, and then maybe a misstatement by Margaret in the, in the middle and you get this horrible implication and then you add social media, like, you know, as we all know, it becomes this cresting wave and then it breaks and everyone goes, what the hell just happened? What was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in James Hansen, in James Hansen's defense, there seems to be sort of a, a spur of parallel research into this um, this ice ocean feedback that that they um, have identified in their paper. And, and I've talked to a few other scientists that are are, are working on follow ups to this paper, um, and that's how it should work. You know, we should we should see a, a very alarming genuinely alarming result come out and then we should see other scientists independently verify it i mean that's what science is or yeah or and or try to to dig deeper into the mechanisms or you know just there's this is how the scientific process works it's sort of a post-publication peer review of sorts you know where people are or you know replicating results are you know commenting back and forth in actual letters to the journal or, you know, referring to the papers as new studies come out. And this process is a, is a very healthy, normal process. And, um, but then, you know, it's the sort of the, the very fast turnover of the, of the news cycle and, you know, added with some social media, uh, you know, allows these little sound bites to be taken out of context and repeated and, um, and then, of course, you have, you know, climate skeptics or deniers or whatever we're calling them that then come in and say, aha, you know, there's a crack in this facade of 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 uh, of um, consensus. And, you know, any any kind of uh, potential, you know, giving ground in terms of a, a criticism within the scientific community just becomes exploited as as you know uncertainty or the fact that we don't know what we're doing and and I think that just undermines this really healthy process of back and forth that needs to happen and needs space to happen yeah and in, in general I think we have what we're seeing right now and what we've described in this entire episode is we have a unique moment of earth's history Gen- I mean not exaggerating we have we're in a, a very special 20 year period um, saying that we can determine um, our, our our collective future path um, based on the decisions that we make now. And people like Jill Stein know that. I mean, they're saying that we need to have a crash course on cutting emissions. And, um, you know, the key is to take the science and to um, have it inform the decisions that we make at the same time as making um, people aware of the situation that we're in. You know, I think that that for many reasons, climate change doesn't rank very highly up there on the average American or average humans 
to-do list because for all the reasons that we've already talked about in previous podcast episode um and to to gather enough steam to address climate change in a effective way is sort of the issue of our time and that's what i think that all of this is trying to to get at um but you know, it, it's really hard to do it in real time and to make sure you're obviously confronting your internal biases and, and making, holding yourself accountable for things that you think are science fiction, but may actually be necessary. You know, maybe in 10 years from now, I'll be a super geoengineering proponent because we'll have had new science that comes out that says, you know, there are no unintended consequences of this special type of geoengineering. And Maybe we'll be doing it then. You know, we have to be open to honestly reading the science on something that's as important as climate change. Yeah, and also, you know, creating space for discussion, for disagreement. Um, You know, when I retweeted that Jill Stein tweet saying, you know, just so you guys all know, this is is incorrect in terms of the, the state of the art of the science. This doesn't represent... The, even the upper end of the predictions for sea level rise by 2050. Um, I, I had a lot of people who are, you know, climate change activists or even scientists attack me. Uh, attack's a harsh word, but, you know, demanding an apology to Jill Stein or saying that, you know, I'm sort of undermining the message or, um, you know, just trying to bend over backwards to make space for that number, that nine feet by, in, you know, by 2050. And, uh, it was just frustrating because it, it's like we can't even check ourselves, right? We need to have some space to, to revisit the evidence, to, to be open-minded, and to constantly check ourselves without feeling like we, we are giving ground on this battlefield where, um, you know, doing, doing something like apocalypse and uh, where we do nothing and, um, you know, a completely green, pure future with 100% renewables is on the other side. And it, it's like, it's not a binary. There's lots of space in between apocalypse by 2050 and utopia by 2050. Yeah. And realizing that we're on one of those middle um, RCP scenarios uh, and knowing that there's not a whole lot that we can do in the next one to two years to change that, um, I think gives sort of a little bit of comfort that we're probably not heading towards that worst case scenario, but we're also probably not going to hit the, the the green utopia scenario. Um, we need to, I think, in the next 20 or 30 years, embrace that, know that we are headed for that middle scenario, probably even with as much effort as we can put in and start talking about what that means, start talking about what, how, how we will feel the 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 impact of of that um of those middle scenarios yeah i uh couldn't agree more um and but this is hard to see if you're an advocate for a particular outcome like 100 percent renewable by 2050 or for like they're pro-nuclear people i know who are completely actually jim hansen is is completely unrealistic on his end of things you it's like you can't acknowledge there's complexity and or room for other arguments and i don't know the answer to this i i've written extensively about this issue how do you response diversity in facing a stress uh, i wrote about a paper there's an ecosystem analysis famous paper 2003 
ecosystems that are resilient are those that have diversity of responses and their components. Uh, and the, but social systems, we don't seem to be able to tolerate that there have there can be diverse responses to a stress, e even with people, even among people who you know pursue the same uh, end, which is a sustainable relationship with the climate. Yeah, diversity and redundancy, right? You need there will be some failure, and to, to be able to 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 have a, a range of responses, and also someone sort of to to step in um, when a system fails. And, and we need kids, and we need kids, we need kids who want to get excited about how do you design Miami for the 22nd century? Like, you know, some kid has to get excited about that, even while we work on the uh, the long haul issue of decarbonization. And I and if it's all like, dire, 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 how dare you be excited? You know, that doesn't really give that kid, uh, that architect or land, landscape planner or whatever, any room to maneuver. That is genuinely the thing that gets me excited. You know, I'm pretty doom and gloom a lot of days, but when, when you start thinking about we have this special opportunity to imagine a better future and actually make it reality because we have to. And that that's something that, that should get people excited. It definitely gets me Good. excited. Welcome to the Anthropocene. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Okay, yeah, great place to stop it for, the, for this episode. Um, yeah, thank you everyone for listening as always. Genuinely, I... I um, I know that you have a wide variety of choices in your podcast experience, and I'm happy that you have found us um, because we are making warm regards because we want to fill the space of people that, that are concerned about climate change and want to sort of talk it out. So if you want to um, contribute a show idea or if you want to be a guest yourself or know of someone that you want to hear, send us a twit or tweet <laughs> at... <laughs> At the uh, our, our Twitter um, account is at our warm regards, and um, we're on Facebook and all the other ways that that you can find us um, are on our SoundCloud page. On behalf of Jacqueline and Andy and our producer Stephen Lacey, I'm Eric Holthouse, and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.